Take two. It's Kandashow's okay. Beetle Revolution. One, two, three, four. On iHeartRadio. Beatles Revolution number 47. It is July of 2018. On this, the 50th anniversary of the release of Yellow Submarine, we're taking a look at Beatles movies. And in addition to joining me with producer Andrew, I have a dear friend who is also from a family of cinema royalty. Hi, producer Andrew. Hello. And joining me, one of my oldest and dearest friends in this business, the only DJ with a license to party. (laughs) The fellow, Cope. fellow thespian. Yes, the Cope. Mark Coppola. Mark, welcome to the Beatles Revolution. Hi, Ken. How are you? Good. I'm, I'm glad you could join me. So the reason I asked Cope to do this is because this week, uh, as we're doing this in July of 2018, is the 50th anniversary of Yellow Submarine's release. I thought, what better time to look at the five Beatle movies? And Mark... Coppola comes from quite the movie family. Your family is responsible for quite a lot of movies that we've enjoyed through the years. If not, your uncle making one of the greatest movies the cinema world has ever seen. Yeah, I would say that those two are pretty good. Godfather, Godfather 2. Yeah, I'd say they're right up there with anything anybody else had put up there. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, are we allowed to talk about your brother? I guess, yeah. yeah I mean, if you didn't know, met Mark's brother is uh, was Nicholas Coppola, who changed his name to Cage, Nicholas yeah. Cage. And of all the action-adventure movies, my favorite movie he's ever done, which near and dear to my heart in New York, <laughs> yeah, I think you know which what I'm talking about. Was it Moonstruck? Of course, Moonstruck. John Patrick Shanley. That's right. He took my hand. <laughs> I mean, you can't do better than him and Danny DeVito. Yeah, and also uh, Eric Roberts was good with that uh, in, in his movie with Mickey Work. Hey, Charlize, yeah. look at my head. <laughs> it took my thumb, Charlie. Yeah, yeah, that thumb. Yeah, yeah. Well, well so, so I, I, well, we get to it. I have a story about Nicholas and Yellow Submarine, which is interesting, uh, and we'll get to that when we get to that movie. But where do you start? Okay, so we start at the beginning, 1964, July of '64, by the way, in the UK. August here, uh, a hard day's night comes out. And nobody had ever made a movie like this before. Just like we talk about the Beatles, you know, as I mentioned, by this point, Elvis has made 14 movies. He released three movies in 1964. There were three Elvis movies, which I ask you, how good could a movie be if you've released three of them? In other words, you're making one every, every four months. I mean, you might as well not even leave the set. Just change. Don't call him Johnny Ace. Call him... Johnny Thunder or something. Just just call him Slick. You'll you'll be king in this movie and slick in the next one. The problem was was as they called him the Lying Dutchman. Andrew and I talked about this in a previous show. Like he just hey, Elvis will just make movies because we can make money. It was that short sighted, hey, this is a way to make money because we don't want to tour. We don't want you to go to Europe. Hey, Elvis, the movies will go to Europe. We don't need to go to Europe because he was afraid he couldn't get back in. He wasn't a legal citizen. Colonel Tom. That's what it is. That was the thing that that I never knew that he wasn't. A, where was he from? He was Dutch, and re, Dutch, the yeah, rumor yeah. was he had killed somebody, and it was so <laughs> worn out. You know, little things like that that might hamper your reentry into the country. Um, but it's such you know, like everything in the Beatles story, it's such a confluence of events that the exact right person and the exact right thing happens at the exact right time. Richard Lester, Jewish kid from Philadelphia. He's super smart, 15 years old, he's going to college already, right? But he's into the arts and show business, and he's working as a PA and, and is sweeping up and at, at the local TV station. And he becomes an assistant director. And then a director because nobody else knew what he was doing. He's directing live 
like westerns on the back lot of a local TV station in Philly. Wow. I mean, as a young guy. And then he goes, all right, I'm bored with this. I can't get into New York. I'm going to London because I could direct. The BBC stuff looks like crap. I could do that. And he's directing for London. And he's a kid from America. So you won't want to give him something like famous, like Coronation Street, like a long-running soap opera. So they put him, like they just did with the Beatles, with the comedy guys, with the goon show. And that was Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan, Harry. That was the that was the Monty Python of the 1950s. It's where Peter Sellers and the comedy came out of. And who's recording that? Who's the audio engineer for the goons? A guy by the name of George Martin. Oh. I mean, it's amazing how all this comes yeah. together. So he's making these movies for the goons show, and he makes a movie called Running, Jumping, Standing Still, like the first big Python, like a Python sketch, yeah. like a Python show. It's the Beatles' favorite show they've ever seen on the Beeb, and John Lennon thinks it's the funniest thing in the world. We get to 64. Hey, who's we, we want to make a movie. They want to make a movie. Who should we have direct the movie? Uh, oh, you love this thing, Running, Jumping, Standing Still? Well, he was the one that Peter Sellers asked to make the first movie of The Goon Show that I produced. Like, it would have to have been Richard Lester, because he's the guy everybody knew. The Beatles loved him, and George Martin knew him. And that's, they want to do a comedy movie, not just a documentary. It, you know, it's not going to be, that's the thing about the Elvis movies. They weren't, they weren't funny. They were just. I, I wanted to ask you that because I think this is another place, uh, another area in which the Beatles influenced, even if it's not that significant. But you look at all the Kiss movies. <laughs> yeah. You know, those guys are all big Kiss fans, also big Elvis fans, but. They were they were all done very tongue in cheek, whereas right. Elvis was was sort of playing the part of a serious actor. Yes, where Elvis. Kiss was like, and the Beatles are like, "Hey, we're not actors; we just are having a laugh." Right. Think that's where the Goon Show thing came in in radio. People used to listen to the Goon Show and think that their set that they were losing the signal because they would bring in static and make their show fade out. And you would bang up to see if they could make people bang on the radio and then huh. fade back in. And that is the radio version of breaking the fourth wall, you know, and of people just talking and us talking to each other. That all started with them. Of, or it would drift and suddenly a commercial would come in. And if you didn't realize it was them doing the commercial, you thought you lost the signal that it had drifted. That's how beatily, you know, the goon show was. So when the Beatles come to make a movie, they're totally breaking the fourth wall and... You know, the Elvis movies were just, you know, B-movies that had Elvis songs in it. Doesn't matter what the script is. Like Elvis said, let, he, there was some interview. They said, what's your next movie going to be? And he was sick of it at this point. He made like 20 of these. He goes, I don't know, but uh, I bet I'm going to be a, a down-on-my-luck working-class guy who falls in love with a girl, and there's some rich guy who don't want me to fall in love with her, and <laughs> it's going to be some sort of race or contest or something and I'm going to beat something body up and sing a lot of songs. <laughs> and you know as funny as that is that's that's pathetic. That is so sad. I mean as we we said when the Elvis doc came out Mark he knew. He he wasn't that he wasn't dumb. he was not educated, but Elvis wasn't stupid. He knew he stuck in B movie land. He said to uh, Yeah, he wanted to get out at one point. Yeah, and, 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 he wanted to tour Europe. Yeah. He even said to a friend once. He goes, "You know what's worse than watching a lousy movie?" making them <laughs> i mean look everybody needs to work and there are a lot of people who make bad movies and made a living but it doesn't mean 
You don't take a shot of whiskey and go, okay, let's make this crap again. But wasn't that his first movie that Love Me Tender was a real sensitive performance? Yeah, that was beautiful. That was beautiful. And then it changed into like the, more of this slapstick stuff. Right. Yeah, he was, yeah. So we get to 64 here, and here's Richard Lester, and what do you want to do? And he says, let's make a sort of pseudo-documentary about the Beatles. The Beatles are going to be the Beatles. They're not going to play four guys. They're going to be the Beatles. Yeah. And well, you know, it's not, there's no plot. It's going to be a day in the life of the Beatles, a week in the life of the biggest band in the world. And we'll just follow them around. But how do you write that? So they hired this guy, Alan, Alan Owen, who had written a, a play about Liverpool. A uh, streetcar goes to Lime Street or something. And he hung around with them for days to see what their life was like. So he was just jotting notes. He hung. This is the perfect way to do a documentary about a week in the day, a week in the life of the Beatles is hang around the Beatles for a week, and he got their rhythms of speech. And he said, "I didn't want to write anything that I didn't think they would they wouldn't say. You know, I didn't want to write one line." And think about that compared to Elvis. Like this is really the Beatles' lives that they have just time compressed sort of into a movie about running to the gig and being late and the screaming girls and trying to get out of it. And there's there's one line that he said that Paul actually said to him. He said, you know, there's nothing really to write about. Our entire lives at this point are a train to a room, to a car, to a room, to a room, to a room. <laughs> and he said, wait a minute, wait, say that again. And he wrote that down. And in the movie, that's what Wilfred Bramble, who plays Paul's grandfather, says to, uh, you know, says to the handlers. He says, yeah, you're enjoying yourself, granddad. He goes, all I've seen is a train and a room and a car and a room and a room and a room. <laughs> And it's exactly what Paul had said, because that was their life. You couldn't, when, when they toured Australia, and they said to John, did you like Australia? He said, I wouldn't know. I hope yeah. someday I get to come back and see it. What did you see? You saw a train in a room and a car in a room and a room and, and the stage in the room. So they caught that. But the one thing that's beyond anything else, and again, Elvis had some good songs, but Elvis didn't write the songs. They tried to get songs for him. And you had one or two hits in, a, in an Elvis movie, and the rest were just, I'm going to win this race. You know, it was just filler songs. Didn't he, uh, what happened, they get him a song, and didn't he get a, a songwriting credit after he made it a hit sometimes? They put his name on there. There was something like yeah. that going on. And, you know, little Stephen was up here a while back, and he made a great point that Lieber and Stoller were writing great songs for Elvis, and the colonel decided he was sounding too black. He didn't want him to have any, like, rhythm and blues he wanted him to be, you know, a real pop star. That he didn't want to take him down a, a, a Negro sort of musical train. So we, they got rid of Lieber and Stoller. So you got rid of the best songwriters the guy could ever have. Yeah. And he's singing, hey, little, you know, just nothing. Just crappy bubblegum songs in the late 50s. And then this movie, even if you hated movies, has one of the greatest songs ever written, A Hard Day's Night. I should have known better if I fell. Happy just to dance with you. And I love her. Tell me why. Can't buy me love anytime at all. I'll cry instead. Things we said today. When I get home, you can't do that, and I'll be back. That's in one movie. Like, you know, just 13 of the greatest Beatles songs you could have at that time. And what Richard Lester said, you know, and that's, that's the, this is where he brings his genius like the Beatles did. When they say, you know, they've seen all the Elvis movies. Well, how are we going to transition to them being on a train to singing a song, where where will they sing the song? And he just said, in the luggage, the, yeah, in the luggage car. <clears throat> what? Yeah, in the luggage car. They'll just play the luggage. Well, will that make sense? Yeah, it's fine. 
You know, and that's the hippest thing in the world in 64 because, as Andrew, as we always felt, is nothing that ever happened, not one MTV video ever, like, advanced the ball past what Richard Lester did in 64. They're talking, and the very next shot, they're playing instruments in a luggage cart in a cage with girls screaming just outside the cage. And you go, does that make sense? Works enough for me. It's just I just want to see a scene in the Beatles singing. I don't need the logic of how they got from here to there. The jump cut in a movie pretty much was Richard Lester. You're not telling a linear story. Yeah. You're just taking scenes and shots and cutting them together, which, you know, when we see that in rock videos and MTV, you took it for granted. That was him in 64 saying, no, we'll tell the story and just keep keep it moving, keep it moving. Yeah, it's, it's still to me one of the best uh, music movies ever made, you know, and I, I saw a recent print of it, you know, uh, another remastered one with the big sound and everything. And it, it, it if it were... You know, it wasn't in color, but it, if it was, it would hold up today. Is oh, without a doubt. Oh yeah, without I mean, but but you know, you get some of the uh, the um, the nuances of like an older movie with black and white. People shoot in black and white just to get that feeling sometimes. Absolutely, <laughs> you know. And there's a in the HD version, Andrew. You have to get the HD version of it because we watched it as kids. Mark and I saw it the first time around. Uh, we saw it in the movie theaters. My mom took me because she was a huge right. music fan. We loved it. I got the soundtrack and then got it on VHS. And there's a scene in Hard Day's Night. Andrew, have you seen Hard Day's Night? No. No. There's a scene in it where they're at a party. And they're really showing the Beatles' life of what it's like in the party. And this the stupid press things saying, and a woman saying to him, you know, you don't really look like him. You know, and he's like, no, it's you look more like him than I do. And, you know, being the hipsters and the trend things where, they're, where they send George Harrison in to decide what the next look is and yeah. who it is. It's, it, was since, it was even mocking the hipster, the soon-to-be hipster London of 64, mocking the ad agencies. It was, and the guy in the train with the – that's the perfect jump cut. They're in the train, and he's got the bowler hat. He's a banker. And can we open the window, mister? I pay my taxes, and I want it closed. Just like what Python was doing with the bowler hat. Oh, please, mister, can we open the window? Uh, the likes of you. And the next shot, the Beatles, who are, have been in the coach, are outside the train running along with it, going, please, mister, can we have a bowl back? <laughs> and that was the hippest thing in the world in 64. But the one moment that you have to see in HD, I don't think I'm spilling the beans too much. We can say anything, right, on the podcast? We can... I mean, it came out like 40-something years ago, yeah. 50 years ago. So, but... Here's Stat a, statute of limitations, right. I think, is so here's, expired. So here's the thing that I never saw as a kid in, in VHS or the earlier versions. There's a party scene, and they're partying and dancing, and Paul is dancing with this girl, and he turns to Ringo and John, who is sitting there, and he says something, and everybody's just having a party because the music's just playing. Well, in the HD version, I don't know if you saw this, Mark, in the HD version, it's very, very clear because there's no sound going. It's just MOS, without sound. And Paul turns to... To John and to and to Ringo, he's dancing with this girl and says, "You see him mouth the words, hey Ring, I'm gonna fuck this bird.'" <laughs> and, and I was I was sitting there with Jane with my wife, who went, "Oh my god!" And nobody really saw it. I mean, you because there was no sound to it, and you right. you're cutting it on a you're a moviola. No, that's a little thing with two reels and a little screen, and nobody saw it. And I, I honestly don't think even in the digital transfer anybody noticed it, but it's clear as day on HD. Paul just says, I'm, I'm going to do her. 
Wow. You got to go see, you got to see the HD version of that. I mean, it's voted top 100 British movies. Uh, AFI voted one of the most 100 influential movies of all time, and without a doubt it is. So they have a three-picture deal with United Artists as distributors, so we have to make another movie. In 65, we get help the year after. The Bond spy spoof movie. Yeah, and the Bond movies were coming on the scene. You had Dr. No, like, what, 64, and then Russia right, with Love, right, and then right, Goldfinger. Right. And they capture that feeling in the movie, but as, it, before there was Austin Powers, <laughs> the spy who shagged me, there right. was this movie, you know. And, you know, the, the one thing about it is, me as a kid, I didn't like Ringo in Physical Trouble. They were going to kill Ringo. <laughs> And as a kid, that bothered me. I didn't want the Beatles in any kind of peril. You know what I'm saying? Does that make any sense? Oh, like, yeah. Like and, just, and Ringo had it bad enough. Right. He's big, a drummer. He's he, all the way in the back. Right. And he was the lonely guy in Hard Day's Night. You know, by the way, uh, uh, ellipse back to Hard Day's Night, Wilfred Bramble, they kept saying he's very clean. That's over and over again. He's such a clean old man. He's very clean. I didn't quite get it. The, the joke on that was he was the star of a... British TV comedy show called Steptoe and Son, which translated over here in America, we made it Sanford and Son. So he was the junkyard guy, and the catchphrase was always, you dirty old man. He was yeah. doing Benny Hill, grabbing girls' butts and things, going, you dirty old man. So the joke was, he's such a clean old man, if you turn to that. Yeah. But now you've got, was it, uh, you know, you've got English actors, Leo McKern playing an Indian, you know, Trying and Eleanor Braun playing, you know, and don't speak, don't speak, you know, just doing that kind of stuff. Uh, and Andrew, this was the motivation for doing this, Cope. When Andrew said, when you saw it, please tell your take on it. Yeah, this is a few months ago, and I, I thought it was, I, I mean, I understood it, and certainly I wasn't offended, but I thought it was curious, it was notable anyway, that all of the, I'm not really sure what nationality they were trying to depict but all the actors of color were actually white actors in brown face right or, or white actors who spent a few days on the beach before <laughs> filming right it was worse uh, in shakespeare time when the guys played guys and girls <laughs> yeah but you couldn't have a woman on stage you weren't allowed here it just it wasn't done no. in the 60s if you think of the worst of all time andrew in the movie breakfast at tiffany's mickey rooney for comedic sake, playing the angry Japanese, uh, you know, landlord of the building, screaming with thick Coke bottle glasses and giant buck teeth, screaming at Audrey Hepburn, Oh, this is the end! And nobody batted an eyelash thinking, wow, that's really obnoxious. No, it, it, I think the last time we saw it was when uh, when they brought uh, Miss Saigon to Broadway and the guy that was playing it in England was an English guy playing an Asian. And he had a fight with the union to be able to do that. But once he left the thing, then Alan, Alan Price, Alan Price. Yeah. And then they started casting it with with, you know, Asians and, and stuff like that. So yeah. I think that's the last time I ever saw that done. I don't well, it doesn't happen. The, anymore. Um, it's not supposed to. The the Gandhi movie. Um, ben Kingsley. Ben Kingsley plays Gandhi. But he's got a little uh, blood. He's, yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a weird conversation to have because you, d you don't really know somebody's story. But then there is this um, this thing with Star Scarlett Johansson. I was just going to. I'm so. I was just um, about to bring that yeah, up. That's, you know, yeah. at, at some point, as moviegoers, we do have su to suspend disbelief, and especially with respect to a movie made in the '60s, you have to consider the times. Right. Um, and the other part is, you know, 
why is Scarlett Johansson playing this famous Japanese anime character? Because it's an extra $100 million at the box office when a huge yeah, Hollywood it, star it's, plays it. It's well, like, um, so you, you're... You're, you're complaining about this. You're advocating for trans rights and all that. Do you want people to see the movie? Right. And we, we're making a blockbuster. If it's an indie, it's a different world. If it's, if it's an, indie, an indie movie, nobody's going to see it. Your message is not going to get out. <laughs> right. You put Scarlett Johansson in it, people will see it. It's just like um, Charlize Theron when she played um, right. Monster. Right. Yeah. She's not really ugly, and she's not a lesbian, but people saw the movie. Right, and she did a hell of a job. But And if you think that movie's worth anything, then that's a positive thing. Uh, the other one, Mark, Interview with a Vampire, right. where Anne Rice was going nuts. Like, Tom Cruise? What are you, nuts? Are you insane? <laughs> and they said, look, what, you know, this will be a, a, a B-plus movie. If you put an A-list star in it, you've got an A-plus movie that'll make... A billion dollars. She said, but why him? And they said, because he wants to do it and we can get him. Yeah. You know, I don't know if your brother, your brother would have been better in it. Your brother would have done that really cool and made it, found some comedy in it. But there are other actors, but they're busy. You can't get them. Here's our window of shooting. Here's the big, that's how it works. Here's, here's our window of shooting. Here's the biggest star we can get who said yes. Just do it. <laughs> just, you just make it. You well, couldn't find a real vampire. <laughs> right, exactly. Go, going back just for a second to uh, the um, people playing uh, different nationalities, I think one of the the worst situations of that was Bruce Lee came up with the concept for Kung Fu. That was his story, his show. But they said, no, we have to have uh, David Carradine play your character. You know, so that's, right. that's kind of and, and poor Bruce Lee. You know, he's sitting there watching it with David Carradine, and go, this is my story. That all changed after that. But I mean, yeah, you know, that's, that's. But again, the Beatles weren't thrilled with it. Well, the reaction that came out said it feels forced. It feels like as per you set the bar so high with a hard day's night. Mm -hmm. This felt like it was pushing, and I would agree with that. It tried. It tried to be zany as opposed to. It just was being awfully zany. long. Yes. For what it is. And a lot of things, a lot of long sequences that weren't Unless funny. Unless I saw maybe a special edition or something. No, there were a lot of long sequences, like when they shrink Ringo yeah. and he's hiding. It's not really, it's not funny, it's not exciting, there's not, you know, a, a lot of music. But there's a lot for me that just laid there. And when I rewatched it, I thought maybe i see it differently. No, there's a <laughs> lot of sequences that lay there. But again, what saves it? Help, the night before. From me to you, you've got to hide your love away. I need you, another girl, ticket to ride. You can't do that. You're going to lose that girl. I mean, just the music is just beyond belief. It's just aces. You can't top it. So, again, movie, no, not nearly as good as this amazing movie. It's one that I think I would see again if there was like a commentary, if you got Paul and Ringo to sit down and rewatch it. Right. And just give just give their commentary what they remembered. I think I think that could be very entertaining if they're just like, why is he small now? Uh, <laughs> why is there a battle at Stonehenge? Right. Yeah. And the answer was, well, we're starting to smoke pot, and um, <laughs> you know, it seemed funny at the time, you know, but everything seemed funny back then. We're smoking pot.
Where does Magical Mystery Tour fit into all this? Magical Mystery Tour, it's not even really a movie. It's a 52-minute TV special that comes out December 26, 1967, the day after Christmas, Boxing Day in England. But it wasn't part of the three-picture deal. It's more of a... No, because it was on TV. You're right. It was yeah. a TV show, yeah, yeah. 52 minutes long. And again, 67, right? We're doing, we're dropping acid. We're out of our minds. It's a combination of Ken Kesey's, you know, on the bus that, that John and Paul are reading, you know, about, about San Francisco and the acid trips and Ken Kesey and they're into beat poetry. And all through England, they had these coach trips. You'd go on a trip to nowhere and you'd just buy a bus ticket as opposed to going to Atlantic City, Andrew, or a bus somewhere, a bus to nowhere. You'd be entertained and you'd stop by the beach. You knew you'd bring bathing suits and you'd be fed, and there was food or a picnic or a park, and you'd just go on a day trip to nowhere. And they just set up a nice little day. So they combine the two, and nothing makes for a better movie than having no script, but getting a bunch of people with a, a handwritten idea loosely sketched, and Paul wrote it in a circle and divided it up like a pie crust. The pie chart will shoot this scene, then that scene, then that scene. What could go wrong with a story like that? And, you know, John said, we're just going to be imaginative with it and just do whatever comes to mind. Did that influence the Who's Magic Bus? I think so, absolutely. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's never said. It's but... never said, but I always assume that. Yeah. Because we go from Magical Mystery Tour and the bus to a magic bus. Yeah, well, that's the first thing I think of is that, yeah. Yeah, so. I mean, and, think, and Pete, you know, out of my brain on the 515. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm tripping on the 515 train right. going out there. Um it bashed. It would, plus, here's the thing. They made it in psychedelic color with all these psychedelic scenes. But BBC One only broadcasts in black and white. So you've got a crappy movie in black and white on Boxing Day. The whole country is waiting for this Beatles TV show. It's a Beatles thing. We're going to get a new movie in the Beatles. What the fuck is this? With a John Lennon with a shovel shoveling spaghetti to his gigantic overweight aunt and eating and they, they, in the yeah. Victor Spinetti doing his shtick. He did a comedy shtick about barking orders at a recruiting office. He had done that on stage doing like a vaudeville thing. That was part of his, his stage act. And just nothing about it, nothing about it worked. And about five days later, they showed on BBC Two in color and nobody cared. It was oh. just... Yeah. ripped. It was actually one of the first times an artist ever apologized. Paul in print just said, you know, look, we goofed. We thought it would work. It definitely didn't work. But of course, being cheeky, he said, uh, you know, the Queen's speech on Christmas Day wasn't a gas either, you know. <laughs> and I'm sure she's never let him forgot that to this day. <laughs> you know, you did say that about my speech in 1967. But again, is there anything about it that's good? Yeah. Magical Mystery Tour, The Fool on the Hill, Flying, Blue Jay Way, Your Mother Should Know, Hello, Goodbye. And the whole look of it is amazing. And the songs of what they did, I mean, they should have just released music videos of these songs rather than try to make psychedelic music videos and turn well, it into a story. Well, it is a, a music story. video. It's a very long music video with all those songs, you know, but it is. You, it's amazing. Now we get to movie number four. And the reason we're doing this podcast on Beatles movies is because this is July of 2018 when we're recording. And it's the 50th anniversary of the full-length animated Beatles movie, Yellow Submarine. I remember seeing it as a kid. I didn't really like it. And to this day, when I rewatch it, it I kind of sits there and I go, yeah. But the thing is, there's a feel, you know, even as a kid, I knew the Beatles had nothing to do with it. It was this producer, Al Broadax, who I've gotten to interview on some of the, the Fest for Beatles fans. And it's actually a great line. He wants to do, 
He's into animation. He's done Saturday morning animation. He wants to do a Beatles animated movie. How do you how do you even approach them at this point? Sixty eight. This juggernaut. They've done Pepper. How do you even approach them? And you know, smart ass Jewish guy, New York producer. He finally gets through to Brian Epstein and says to him, "Yes, what can I what can I do for you, Mister Products?" He goes, "He goes, Mister Epstein, I've got an idea for the Beatles that's going to make you a million dollars." And Brian stops for a minute and then explodes laughing. What a great cheeky start to say, to come up with something that silly. I'm going to make you a million dollars. We made a million dollars by the time I woke up this morning. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> at 67. Yeah. We made a million dollars on what was sold this morning on the last album we made. So he goes, okay, I'm listening. He goes, animated movie, Beatles. I do animation. They don't have to be on the set. They don't have to do it. We'll just do it. He goes, boy, the boys might be interested in that. Um, so he goes to the Beatles. What do you think? Not interested, but here's where Hollywood comes in. They made a deal with United Artists, who are the release, you know, the distribution company for a three-picture deal. They love doing Hard Day's Night. They're, they don't like touring now. It's getting to them. 65 help didn't come out the way they want. They don't want to make another movie. We don't have any ideas. We're not going to go back and do Hard Day's Night the third time. Wait, we don't have to be there? We don't have to do it? And this will get us out of our contract? This will be done? Okay, make an animated yeah. movie. Well, can you voice the parts? No, we're not even going to do that. Just get people to imitate us. They did a good job with that, though, I thought. you know, it's like They it's, did, but even as a kid, it, I knew it, was it wasn't them. Yeah, yeah, you knew it wasn't I them. I knew it wasn't them, and when, I felt disconnected. When these movies were being released, were, was, was the release like as big... Um, as any other major studio film at the time. I think Yellow Submarine was. I seem to remember going to... Where, would it be like the equivalent of a select theaters thing? No, it was huge. Yeah. It was, we've got the new Beatles movie. When, mm -hmm. when Hard Day's Night came out, and especially that, and I think with help, but I remember Hard Day's Night, they showed it around the clock. Movie screenings when Mark and I were kids where you know, there was an 11 a.m. show, there was a 3 p.m. show, it was a 6 p.m. So, know, so it was just like any Cary Grant or right. Frank Sinatra movie. When you get to Hard Day's Night, if the movie was 90 minutes, they showed it every 98 minutes. You know, as fast as you could re-rack. Mm -hmm. the, the only time difference in between the sh screenings were how fast you could get the audience out of your theater and get the next group in. So you showed it 10 times a day. They showed it, it was the first time in 64. You start at 8 in the morning and you do it till... The last person leaves because that's how much money you made wherever you were in any country in the Western world. If you had a movie theater and you had that movie, you ate well for those few weeks. So it was the same thing there. But Yellow Submarine, not quite as much, but it was still a big deal because it's animated. It's like a Beatles cartoon, but it's hip. But again, it felt weird for weird sake in a lot of ways. Here we are in Pepperland and the Blue Meanies. I mean, it's very obvious the Blue Meanies hate music and they're bopping people with giant apples and turning them to stone and they have to go get the Beatles in Liverpool, take a yellow submarine to Pepperland and kill the Blue Meanies and bring the music back. Yeah, whatever. It seemed forced. And again, the jokes, the puns were funny. There are a lot of puns. You know, saying to a blue mini, funny, you don't look bluish. There were puns, but it didn't it didn't light me up even as a kid. When I watch it now, I don't know if you've seen it again, Mark. It's still kind of, you look at it and go, all right, if I were totally stoned, I would like the colors, I think. It, you know, it's that thing. Good if you, colors in there. Yeah, if, you're, if, you, if a movie doesn't hold up if you're sober, eh, I don't think you I'm would. thinking I saw it on the 40th anniversary and maybe the 30th anniversary. Yeah. They bring it back, but they did a, a remastered one on the 40th 10 years ago. I think it was, right. it was pretty good. Um, 
Yeah, there's a funny story about that because when it originally came out, you know, I you know, I have two brothers, and then the youngest one is Nicholas. And the first thing I ever saw him do where he was like doing different characters was there was a talent show at Tincher High School in Long Beach, California. We all went to that school. And so we're all in the audience and he comes on stage with like a blue turtleneck shirt and a, wearing a peace sign or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he goes into Yellow Submarine. And the, um, the, the lyrics were one voice, his regular voice, and then he went up like an octave and did like this thing he calls a bottle of voice like this for the chorus. And everybody clapped. And I mean, this is the first time I saw him do two characters in one song. I thought that was pretty interesting. It was influenced all because he saw the movie. This is Nicholas. How, yeah. old, how old was he? This had been like, seven or so. Six, seven. Wow. Six, seven, eight, six. Uh, in there. First, second grade, something like that. Wow, from from that, from singing Yellow Submarine to National Treasure. Wow, that's well, well, then what happened was is that the well, other brother face off came would, first. Oh, I, yeah, you're right. That's yeah, more, that's more well, like the, the the other brother was making like Super Eight and Eight Millimeter movies with Nicholas always starring in them. Right. You know, so that happened right after that, and they started doing all that stuff together. You know, so. Um, but again, what saves Yellow Submarine? The music. But, yeah, I mean, it was written. The idea came from the song "Yellow Submarine" that Paul came up with for something for Ringo to say. And we get "Hey Bulldog" and all together. Oh, what a great now. song, though! That, 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 Perfect, that, oh, amazing oh. song. Ama- with that that piano bass. Oh. Dun, 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 dun. They added so much stuff. Baby, you're a rich man. Only in Northern song, um, you know, and added so much to the soundtrack. Even bringing back things with a little help from my friends and you know into this i like it's all too much on that it was like one of the coolest songs and it fit with the movie with the organ in it absolutely and and george martin scored this symphonic thing for sea of holes and he added the that was on the flip side right yeah exactly remember that yeah and by the way just in researching this i found out there's a the guy who did george george harrison's voice for the first half of the movie not the second (laughs) is is a guy by the name of peter batten and the reason he's uncredited, Andrew, is while he was recording this, they discovered that he was a deserter from the British Army in the Rhine in Germany, and they came to get him and arrested him for desertion. I mean, Mark, we, you and I have had some... That's why he didn't finish voicing the character? Yes, and that's why he was uncredited. I've never heard of anything like that. Mark, you and I have had some bad voiceover gigs, but yeah. that one takes the that cake. That one is it. They came rounded him up. Yeah. He came right in. Yeah. <laughs> Take you, him out. Do you have a gentleman by the name of, of George Peter Batten here? Uh, yeah, he's recording the thing. Yeah, I come never with knew us. that story. That's never awesome. Knew that. You dug so, deep so the on Beatles that one. got a deserter arrested. <laughs> yeah. Nice Basically. job. <laughs> Good right. job, John. Remember, they weren't involved with the movie. They, yeah. Well, if they were involved, maybe he wouldn't. Well, they wouldn't actually, the th- here's the thing. They had to be. When they make that ver- appearance at the end, which is the weirdest thing, suddenly they make a cameo at the yeah. end, the, the Beatles playing, and I never understood it. Well, contractually, to United Artists, three Beatles movies, that meant the Beatles performing in the movie. But it never stated how much performing they had to do. So they did this cameo at the end of... Yellow Submarine, where it's actually the Beatles playing a song, and they went, there, we're in the movie, we're done here. Here's your three movies, and the Beatles are performing in all three of them, so shut the hell up and bye. And, you know, they got out of it because they just weren't into it anymore. But, you know, by 68, we're coming apart at the scene. They're doing the White Album. They're at each other's throats. They're not talking. They're not having fun. We have to do this? Fine. Can we do this in two hours? You set up everything. We'll play a song. Are we done here? Well, are we done here? Yes, good, and we're out, and that's what happens. We get to that. Okay, so now we get to the final movie, Let It Be, May of 1970. Uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg, 
the director who, as you know, from Spinal Tap, they called him Sir Eaton Hogg. <laughs> I was, love that. So, But Paul, look, they're at each other's throats, right, in the White Album. And he says, so why don't we just make a movie? We'll strip it back down, just us playing, just us recording, playing, no special effects, no tape backwards, no orchestra, just us playing songs and writing songs. And let's let's make it as a as a movie. We'll do a documentary of us just being musicians. And it'll be simple and it'll be easy. Paul forgetting now that they've already broken apart. John is married to Yoko, and that's all that matters. George is married to Indian music and Krishna, and that's all that matters to him. Ringo is lost and drinking, and Paul's the only guy who wants to be in the Beatles and be successful. Nobody else wants to be there. And as he always said, it was, the, it was a good idea, like, hey, let's just, whatever, play something, we'll play to it, and it'll be nice and easy. But it's early in the morning, and they're, instead of being in Abbey Road Studios, they're at Twickenham Soundstage, which is cold, it's in the morning, there's lights, there's a camera in your face. Now, we add that to the fact that there are four people, three of which don't want to be there, and it's just a living hell. Yeah, and you really see the relationships, and you see, you know, like the, you know, George Harrison, you know, I'll play whatever you want me to play, you know, but you can see the tension that, uh, you It's know. a horrible moment. Andrew, do you know this? Have you seen that scene? I've seen I've seen bits of it. I know the concert better. Right. There's this moment that Mark's talking about where George, uh, where Paul is trying to explain to him of what he wants to play. Uh, you know, here it, it could go like this, and George just says, "Tell me what you want me to play. I'll play whatever you want me to play, or I won't play at all." No, I'm not saying that. Whatever pleases you. Whatever pleases. Yeah, it you. Was no, tense. I just want you to whatever <laughs> pleases you, and. People always go, well, why? You know, it hasn't been available since the 1980s. You know, I've always said to Andrew, there's a movie about my parents' divorce. I don't want to see my parents fighting. This band that I love that were my friends, I don't want to see them fighting. I don't no. want to see that movie. They're miserable and unhappy. And I'll just watch Hard Day's Night again, thanks. Even just filming yourself recording is not something that most most musicians would be very comfortable with. Because that's where you're making all your mistakes, right? Or when you're when you're writing a song, um, you know, most of the time you spend is throwing away parts that are lousy. Can you imagine with your band, one hundred thousand? You've had huge success, and now you're fracturing. And I have a camera on you every minute in the studio for real as you're trying to record an album and record something coherently. And play something, and there's no, I never take the camera off you. The rule was from the minute the Beatles show up, start rolling, to the minute the last Beatle leaves, film. And that pressure would, you know, even in the best of times, that would drive you nuts, let alone when you're at the last moments of a band. And yet, we want to do something great. So let's do a live concert. And as Ken Mansfield has said to me here on Breakfast with the Beatles, he was running Apple at the time, let's do a concert. Let's do a show. Because that was the first idea. We're going to do a re show, a rehearsal, and a concert. And we couldn't work out the concert because even, even, let's go to Dublin and shoot a concert. No, they, there's no way we can do a Beatles concert and hide it. So I think it was Ringo who said, why don't we go up on the roof? There's a great book about all this called The White Book, written by Ken Mansfield, who came from America to run Apple and help him. And he explains what that rooftop concert was all about. Here's the story in his own words. We tried a thing uh, of booking them into a club in Germany under the name Ricky and the Red Streaks. <laughs> the idea being, okay, we'll just say, here's this hot new English band, and we'll book them in as Rick. And so the people come in, they hear this new band, and out walk the Beatles, and we'll have the footage. 
but you couldn't keep the secret. So we're down to the wire, and so we go, let's go up on the roof. No, nobody will bother us. We'll just be up there. So we set it up on the roof, and we closed the doors downstairs. And I went up to the dressing room, which was an office, and I walk in. It's the strangest thing, man, is because it was like they were a nervous band getting ready for an audition or a concert. They're going over things, you know, and they were like, they looked like they were nervous. Concert time's 1 o'clock. And it started, we locked the door upstairs, and then something magic happened because all of a sudden there's like just a dozen of us up there maybe and we realized wait a minute something something's different here something's happening and we realized none of us knew what it was like this is the last time or uh, you know they're going to break up after this or anything it was just we knew something incredible was happening and it was very scary in a way but I was standing like a few feet away from the Beatles and the minute they started playing all that tension, all the things that were going down, you could see it went away and that they were the band that they always meant to be, if. that they always had been. You listen to those to the raw tapes, which I'm sure you have. Yeah. We're on top of a roof six stories up, freezing cold, January 30th, you know, in London. And listen to how good they played that day. It's just pretty amazing when you listen to the raw. They were a great Band. That was Ken Mansfield, who is there. He's the guy in the white coat standing against the chimney. I get goosebumps when he tells that story. Remember, the Beatles hadn't performed live since, what, 66? Yeah, it was a long, long, long gap there. In four years, in Beatle time, of never having performed live and just doing studio work. So four years, and this is going to be it. And like not just playing, but captured for posterity forever. This will be the last moment. But you have Billy Preston there, and it's freezing cold, and you can't feel your fingers, and the instruments are going out of tune, but let's go there and roll even with john flubbing the lines it's so special and they, they 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 immortalize it on film and it's it's so cool to have that you know that, if, that. to me if they re-released anything you throw away the whole doc except re-release the rooftop have have giles martin redo the pristine yeah, sound Go you know make it clean get every piece of editing that you have put that up there just release that as 25 minutes you'll sell a zillion copies of it because that's what i want to see the beatles last performance on the roof with billy preston that's all i need i just want to see you play yeah and then the album came out and they, they were nominated for three academy awards over the or, or mccartney was but the one that they won was let it be isn't that wild? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy. I mean, his Live and Let Die didn't win. He was nominated. His uh, Vanilla Sky didn't win. He was nominated. But the Beatles won the Oscar right. for Best Song for Let It Be. Do you know That's how amazing. they picked out the set list? It was the songs they had written for that Listen. album. Yeah. And what can we play live? How are we going to do it? And then throw in, they segue right into One After 909, one of the first songs they ever wrote for fun because this is the last time. So after, in spite of all the danger, maybe the second or third song, John, and Paul wrote was one after 909. You know, it would just go right back to the earliest days. Move over once, move over twice, and we'll end it with that. Thanks, Mo. And the most perfect line anybody ever said to end a band's career. On behalf of the band and my the boys and myself, and I hope we pass the audition. Cut, done, Beatles, done. I mean, you can't end a band any better than with that statement. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it was, it was funny because, you know, you, you were saying that Paul wanted to still be the Beatle, yeah. still wanted to be in the band. But it ended up that then then it ended up with this big this war between Yoko and then the Eastman family with and so then Paul just pulled the plug on it you know or something right. timing wise it was weird while this is going on while they're shooting you know yeah. let it be and John's the one who comes in and says I want a divorce 
You know, when they always said Paul's breaking up the Beatles in yeah. 1970. No, no, he, he announced it, but John was the one who said, That's right. It's, it's me and Yoko. And like Andrew had always said, why can't you do solo work with Yoko, but as long as there's the Beatles, give your energy to the Beatles. Either either be out or be in. But to be in there and say Yoko's going to be with me every single second, and if she's sick, she's gonna we're going to bring a bed into the studio, and she's going to live there. That's just, that's so in your face to do to your bandmates. Uh, yeah. Just don't come. Just don't come. Don't do that to them. <laughs> and that was the famous story doing Let It Be. She, she went, George, they were very proprietary about their food because they didn't have a lot of food and a great British biscuit McVitie's George had it near his thing sitting on the piano near his area and and Yoko got up from the bed to like go get one of his cookies huh. and they're sit everybody's in the control room going oh oh no don't take his food don't. and George like just freaked out just went nuts and on the talk back like get away from my cookies because and Andrew, you know, you get to that point in any creative thing, Mark, on the set. You know, you're fighting. You know, he had a shit fit over the sandwich. It's not really about the sandwich. It's about a hundred other things. Yeah. And it's just that we use the sandwich to do it. But it's it, you would say he threw a fit because the thing. No, it's not about the sandwich or the hat. It's about what's going on and why the the artist isn't happy. And that's where they were. For me, take all five of these movies that are amazing. You can just leave me with Hard Day's Night, and that's the Beatles movie I need to see. That and the rock video of the concert on the roof. Exactly. I'll take those two, Andrew. Yeah, what about you? Nice. <laughs> Sounds good to me. All right. That Mark Coppola, thank you so much. Hey, last thing, and I never got to ask you. Your uncle, Francis, is he a Beatles fan? Did you ever have that discussion? No, I never had that discussion with him. He he liked all music. They all grew up on classical music, but mm -hmm. I do think he liked the Beatles. I do. Um, I do. The most interesting thing was his father, my grandfather, when they were doing music for Apocalypse Now, though, they bombarded the guy that only listened to classical music with Jimi Hendrix all day long, and he goes... <laughs> Oh, Hendrix was good. Really? Your grandfather said that? Yeah, yeah. And then I said, you know, well, what, what about the Beatles? You know, and he said, well, yeah, you know, they write basic songs, but, you know, but that, but that's what he wrote. My, my grandfather wrote like songs that were simple, you know, like that. It's like the Beatles, only in classical. You right. Know? So, yeah, no, I don't, I, I think, I think the, the thing that was said to me one time was I asked, we always ask, do you think the Beatles will get back together to people? Somebody said, I forget who it was. No, because they grew into, too big an individual each, and we became individuals. Right, were, you know, and that's it. Yeah, it was a four-headed person. The original yeah. title of Help was Eight Arms to Hold You. Yeah, you know, and when you become individuals, and you're not one, as George said, we, they always we were always the boys. Here come the boys. Yeah. We were the boys for so long. Well, they were a unit. We're men. Yeah, yeah. Mark Coppola, thank you. Producer Andrew, thank you.